Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Today's episode of Other People is brought to you by Bad on Paper. Bad on Paper is a women's lifestyle podcast hosted by best friends Grace Atwood and Becca Freeman. They're best friends. It's adorable. Bad on Paper hosts a monthly book club. On the last Wednesday of every month, there's a book discussion episode. These ladies have eclectic taste. They read books from all kinds of different genres. And in between the book club uh, discussions, the hosts interview interesting people about everything from their careers to their beauty routines. Recent guests have included supermodel Cindy Crawford, children's book author Eva Chen, and late night show host and author Graham Norton. This is a great, easy listening podcast. It has a great Facebook community, too. Check that out. Listen to Bad on Paper every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Bad on Paper. It's a podcast. Okay? Hey, folks, what's going on? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I am Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thanks for listening. Erin Eileen Almond is my guest today. She has a novel out on Lanternfish Press. It's called Witch's Dance. I really enjoyed meeting Erin Eileen Almond. Eileen. I keep wanting to say Erin Eileen Almond. <laughs> Uh, so what happened is that I did not have a plan in place to have Aaron on the program. Like it's hard for me to keep up sometimes with all the different book tours and I try to do, uh, you know, a thorough job of that, but I do miss authors sometimes when they come through town or the schedules just don't work. But, uh, as it happened, I was out uh, one evening walking my dog Twiggy through the uh, city of Los Angeles and I passed an ice cream shop. And as I'm passing the ice cream shop, I got to say too, like mea culpa, I may have been a little stoned, uh, you know, like lightly, like, like light edible situation, like headphone or earbuds in, you know, the uh, AirPods, they were plugged into my ears. I'm listening to music. I'm walking my dog down the street. I pass this ice cream shop. And like, once I get past the ice cream shop behind me, I hear Brad Listy. And I turn around, and it is Sarah Tomlinson, who has guested on this program before. 
Uh, she was just on the episode I did not too long ago about that uh, Joan Didion anthology where I had a kind of like round table situation. But she's also guested uh, as, you know, as an individual writer a few years back. So I turn around and there's Sarah and we start talking and it turns out she had just done a reading at a local bookstore and uh, then she introduced me to her friends, one of whom was Erin uh, Eileen Almond. And, you know, I think, I forget who said it. I think Sarah was like, oh, you know, I think you might have interviewed her husband, Steve. I put it all together. And I got very excited. I was like, oh, my God. You're Aaron Eileen Almond. <laughs> and uh, I immediately said, well, well, you know, you should come over and do the show if you're in town on book tour. Kind of felt bad that I hadn't invited her to begin with, you know, but I, I don't always have my shit together in the way that I should. And, uh, fortunately the timing of it worked out. She, you know, she came over the following day and we sat down and had a great talk. So Aaron Eileen Almond and, uh, her new novel, Witches Dance available from Lanternfish Press. So get ready for that. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by Barn 8, the new novel by Deb Olin Unferth. It's available from Gray Wolf Press. It's a vegan Ocean's Eleven starring a million chickens. What do you think about that? It's about a group of washed-up radicals who uh, hope to find redemption and pull off the most ambitious heist in animal liberation history. This is a painstakingly researched and daringly imaginative novel. Barn 8 is an addictive reading experience. It might also possibly make you a vegan. Barn 8 by Deb Olin Unferth, available now from Grey Wolf Press. So, yeah, uh, I hope you're doing okay out there. I'm kind of paranoid about coronavirus. And the only reason that I'm paranoid is that I don't feel like we're getting good information from the government. Shocker. So I'm, uh, you know, the good news is that I'm uh, self-quarantining in my garage, which is my natural mode of existence anyways. But it's just kind of fucked up. I don't want to touch anything. (laughs) Ugh, what kind of like can the can the world be more of a hell than it is right now? Just like a dystopian fucking nightmare. I don't mean to be a downer. I'm just saying, like Jesus Christ, can we catch a break? I think we all are just punch drunk at this point. What an exhausting reality we seem to uh, find ourselves in. So you know, stay safe out there. Uh, listen to the CDC. Listen to the scientists. Wash your fucking hands. (laughs) Sing happy birthday. Just humiliate yourself at the sink. Just, uh, you know, just degrade yourself. Sing happy birthday to yourself as you uh, hope for a long life. I think that's all I got. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to 
tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Let's get to the uh, interview. I had a great time with Erin Eileen Almond. Her new novel, Witch's Dance, is out there now from Lantern Fish Press. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Erin Eileen Almond. Can uh, I tell you, that's why I still do the old-fashioned right in the analog version of the calendar. Yeah, you know, this technology... I don't trust it. If it crashes, then what do you do? Here's why I like it. Here's why I like calendar technology. Mm-hmm. Um, is that it? You can give yourself automatic reminders. Mm-hmm. I don't have to think. Like it'll beep and tell me, like, oh, remember? Yes. That, you know, today yeah. you have an appointment. But um, I have this dream that my wife is also going to get on the same sort of thing. Like we're going to have synced up calendars. Yeah, we had that dream. <laughs> That's a nice dream. It is a nice dream. It's not happening. No, it never happened for us. So Steve does the iCal. And He's got his electronic and I have the analog. We should we should just yeah. say for people listening, when you say Steve, you mean Steve Almond. Steve Almond. Past guest on this program and your husband. And my wonderful husband. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So he's iCal. He's iCal. And you're analog. And I'm my flowered, you know, calendar with stickers in it. And But here's the thing. Like, I like to circle and draw hearts around things and make little notes in the margins. And you can't do that in the electronic version of the calendar. You know what? An analog calendar worked perfectly well for how many hundreds of years? Exactly. It worked great. Exactly. And now we think we need you know, this different thing with all these different bells and whistles and it just gets complicated. Right. And often he's missing stuff on the electronic version and I'm flipping through pages and going, remember you have this thing coming up next week and you're selling it. Oh yeah. Yeah. So it's like having backup. (laughs) I have this, uh, one of my uh, coworkers gave me this, like went to Tokyo Mm -hmm. and what I'm holding here in my hand for people listening is like this beautiful, like little blue. It's very cute. Kind of looks like a moleskin, but it's kind of like stylish. Yeah. And I have these dreams of like carrying it with me everywhere I go and like taking it out, like making that, notes. That was an interesting bit of dialogue. Yeah. I still haven't done it, but yeah. I use it a little bit for like, you know, just to make lists of to do's and stuff. Mm-hmm. Are you, uh, in addition to being analog calendar person, are you a analog like to-do list person? Yes, you are for sure. Yeah. yeah. Because the satisfaction of drawing a line through something or checking it off when it's actually written down, I feel cannot be replicated electronically. Yeah. So does that apply then to your writing life? Are you a word count person or, Oh yeah. So did you ever hear, and I'm going to just add like an extension, like the remember uh, Jerry Seinfeld, have Mm. you ever read this about him? How he has like an analog calendar and the way that he keeps track of his productivity as a comedian is he would have to write so many jokes per day. Oh, wow. And once he did, he would make a big X yeah, through the through day. The day. And, and then it would start to create a chain of X's. Yeah. And it became his obsession to I never, love that. never break the chain. Yeah. So is that how you do wow. your writing? <laughs> no, but it will be from now on. <laughs> I mean, I do have, I'm actually different when I'm working on a novel. I, I used to handwrite first. 
that was my process. And then at a certain point that became too slow. And now I'm typing on the computer, but I'm, I do keep track of what I'm doing. I'm, I make lists. I find it very satisfying to, to set the bar low and have on my list. It's often not word count. It's time. Mm. I'm going to work on my novel for an hour and I'm not And my reward at the end will be like, I'll get to check email or click on, you know, Twitter or something, but I have to get to the end of that hour. And then I get, both get the reward and get the satisfaction of checking it off. So and you can yeah. go in for an hour and be productive in, in that compact amount of time. Yes. You can just dive right in. Oh yeah. Well, no, there's a certain amount of warm up, And sometimes you get to the end of the hour and, and you're like, wait, I'm not done yet. And it, it extends. That's kind of best case scenario. But right. on the days where it's really hard to get to the page, it's like, oh, it's an hour. Like I can do an hour. I can circle around my ideas or I'll start by editing whatever I did during my last writing session. And that will kind of launch me forward. So um, for people listening, Aaron uh, is here sort of fortuitously. Uh, I was walking uh, my dog Twiggy last night in my neighborhood and was going past an ice cream shop. Uh, and Sarah, you know, Sarah Tomlinson, who mm -hmm. recently guested on the program, mm -hmm. she contributed to the Joan Didion anthology mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, we featured here on the show. She like popped out of the ice cream shop and yeah. said hello and you were with her. So you guys She's know my each dear other. friend. Yeah. I'm staying with her here okay. in LA. So her and our other mutual friend, Kathy Elsick, who's out here with me years ago in Boston, we were in a writing group together working on our first novels. And she since has come out here and she's kind of our West coast pal who we get to come out and visit. So, uh, but the, the story of being an, in LA, this is, it's very much been like this, like serendipitous meetings with people in cafes and bookstores. And it's kind of becoming part of the magic of LA for me. Really? Like, what, yeah. what else happened? Um, well, we were in a little um, grocery store in the corner and Sarah ran into a musician friend of hers who you know, plays in a band and um, had tickets to a show that she was really eager to get into. So that happened. And then meeting um, various writers in bookstores. I don't know how much name dropping is cool to do, but <laughs> I love name. dropping. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say like, I got to meet um, Janet Fitch, one of my writing heroes who I've admired and know that she does a lot for the LA writing community and just like running into her in a bookstore was that felt magical to That's me. That's cool. So yeah. Do you enjoy it here? I do. You do. I do. You know, I went to grad school down in Irvine. I did my MFA at UC Irvine. Oh, so you did. I, yeah. So, so you... I lived in Orange County for a couple of years. Um, and I wasn't as plugged into the LA writing scene. Like it always felt like, oh, we're the serious writers in our graduate literary program. And up in LA, they're all writing screenplays. Like they're, they're unserious. And I've since learned how not true that is yeah <laughs> that there are lots of people doing really interesting things here yeah i mean it's like you know it's it's really it's always a small community mm -hmm. relatively speaking but there's a you know there's a lot of writers uh, yeah. a lot of literary people in la yeah. and if you and if you know if you hang out at bookstores and go to events mm -hmm. and do events you're going to run into you know, eventually, if you do enough of it, you're going to run into most everybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or you'll be like, why? You know, tapped into the scene. But mm -hmm. I, I'm curious about um, the Irvine grad program because mm -hmm. it is one of our best. Yeah, most competitive. It's yeah. kind of up there with Iowa. Mm -hmm. um, I've had lots of Iowa um, people on the show. I've had some Irvine writers. Um, 
Charmaine Craig, Matt Summel. I'm thinking of those two. Oh, Matt Summel. Yeah, we were in the program together. He's we a character. A bit. He's great. I haven't seen him in yeah, a while. Yeah, he's but, very funny. Yeah, he's a good dude. But, I was uh, hoping to see him, but he's. I think he's in Sacramento. So. Oh, he is? Missed out. Yeah. What's he doing in Sacramento? I don't know. Okay. Mysterious things. But th- what I, a mutual friend of ours did tell me that he is... Since I've last seen him, he's riding a motorcycle with a sidecar and puts his dogs in there. Puts his dogs. Yeah, he always has these little bulldogs. (laughs) Yeah, they're like you know these sort of like mongrel bulldogs. I used to. I saw. I've seen him walking them up in the canyon a few times. Mm -hmm. And like what I remember too, he was here on election night, 2016. Oh my gosh! I had a party in this room. Yeah. I think I'm going to do it again. But we're going to burn sage. I'm going to make it like we're going to have to drive the spirits out. Be prepared for. And just have like, yeah. I would like maybe have like a reserve of just like pillows and blankets and like therapists on call. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you need. Heavy sedatives. We were in Florida at a uh, writing conference down in Sanibel, Florida. And, and I was every, the particular area that we were in, we were like biking around and we were just seeing Trump signs everywhere. And I kept uh, thinking, oh, these people are going to be so sad <laughs> the day after the election. Yeah. I hope like, you know, there isn't trouble in this town when Hillary wins. And of course we know how that went. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was a rough night. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I live in sort of a bubble here, mm-hmm. so I didn't, I mean, I got, I guess I kind of saw it coming, but I guess I didn't want to believe it. Steve was very onto that, actually, because we had gone out to dinner that night and we were traveling with our kids, but we wisely didn't bring them out to dinner with us. And I was like, let's get all these desserts because we're going to be celebrating later. Like even thinking they were going to make the call by like 9 p.m. It was going to be done. She was going to win in a landslide. And we have two daughters. I thought, oh, this is going to be this historic moment. The first female president. You're wearing all white. (laughs) I was so ready for that celebration. And Steve kept going, you know, she might not win. And I kept saying, oh, but the polls. And he said, well, even if the polls say 90%, that means 10%. Like it it could still happen. Yeah. Um, So he was kind of the the pragmatic voice who was, he's still devastated, obviously, but not like, I was so shocked. I was like, I feel like I've stepped into a twilight zone episode, I'm, you know, not to spend too much time on 2016. Cause I think yeah, we all need it's to too sh- depressing. It's too depressing. But, uh, the dynamic in the room, if I recall correctly, is like, this room was pretty full. Everybody's standing around and a lot of the women in particular, I think were mm-hmm. so ready for that celebration yeah. and they were so, I think so certain she was going to win. Yeah. And I was standing right over there and I was a nervous wreck. Mm-hmm. And as soon as Pennsylvania started to go sideways, mm-hmm. I just like got down into a crouch. Like, you know how yeah. you sort of crouch like, yeah. like a coach or something yeah. at a game? You were bracing. I just like, yeah, I just got down into a crouch and people were like, what's wrong? And I was like, uh-oh. Yeah. Because, you know, you start to do the electoral math, but... It's a brutal night. I hope we have a better outcome, but like, yes, I'm feeling very wobbly about how it's all going. I don't, I don't, I don't see it clearly. Yeah. And I have like a divided mind in ways that makes me uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I think there's a part of me that's like, well, here's where I am on policy. Mm -hmm. And then there's the other part of me that's a little cagier and more cynical. And I'm like, here's where I am on strategy. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, how yeah. are we going to win? And, yeah. And... I think a lot of us are feeling that. So it's like between yeah. like the rational mind and like the idealistic right. part of me. Right. Like, here's who I want to be president, who I think would make the best president. And then like, oh, but who's that person who's going to go 
up against Trump and actually win. I feel like that's the the debates keep boiling down to that. Like everybody's got their particulars of policy and then somebody like Klobuchar raises her hand and goes, guys, none of this matters, you right. know, if you can't beat Trump. Right. So I and, think, yeah. But like, you know, so much can happen by the time this episode airs. Who knows where we're, you know, what's going to happen. Be I got living it. in the new dystopian reality. Yeah, I got it. Well, the new <laughs> right. dystopia like 3.0, whatever we're going to, whatever number we're on right now, whatever iteration. But uh, I got a text message from a friend this morning, and apparently there's like a meteor heading for the Earth. That's like, oh, that's perfect. That, potentially that feels gonna... like where we're at. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm like, well, maybe that, I mean, that would be very 2020. <laughs> it's like going to unleash like nuclear winter. And... It's all on fire. The meteor is on its way. Yeah. Tsunamis. Oh, but man, um, I think that you have a lot of these more moderated Democrats or centrist Democrats mm-hmm. splitting up that vote. Mm-hmm. That's where we are as we speak. Yeah. Maybe it'll be different by the yeah. time this goes up. But uh, I had like a very dark thought where I was like, what if Mike Bloomberg just was like, I'll pay you all to quit. <laughs> like you can each have a billion dollars. Yeah, just go away. Just move out. Yeah. Let me have this. Yeah. I almost. You can be cabinet members. You yeah. can still You'll be do my good VP. Yeah. You'll be like my VP. You'll only get yeah. 500 million after we leave office. And then you're going to have to quit. So here's a billion. Yeah. Just shut up. Sign this NDA. Yeah. Like, what does it say about our politics that that's like not a ridiculous right. thing to think? Right. That's yeah. exactly it. I was sort of like mm-hmm. laughing to myself and then I started to like stop laughing. You were like, <laughs> wait a second, <laughs> I'm onto something. Yeah. Yeah. So anyhow, it's very, uh, it's very choppy. Yeah. I feel like we're in choppy waters. Yeah. We've been in choppy waters for a while. And yeah. I hope it sorts itself out. I hope that like, like, here's a question for you. Mm-hmm. Do you have confidence in group mind? Oh gosh. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, that's hard. Like, don't you um, sometimes, like, sometimes I want to be like, you know what? If the group believes this and I happen to feel differently, mm-hmm. maybe the group's right. Maybe the group is right. No, I think that's very dangerous. <laughs> yeah. If you if you look back on history, we can think of many examples where that went wrong. Yeah. Um, I also grew up in a very conservative religious family, so oh, I probably have that. my own personal reaction to what it means to be inside of that and try to break free of it. Me too. Yeah, so you let's, do. Okay. Let's talk. Where okay. are you from? Uh, I'm from East Hartford, Connecticut. Okay. Um, I grew up, um, but my parents were very, even though I like, I think people associate a certain, um, something with Connecticut, which is not my Connecticut experience. And so my parents both came from families that were Western Pennsylvania. My dad's dad worked in a steel mill. I was going to say that's like Pittsburgh and right. My mom's dad was a construction worker and they were very like blue collar and somehow they landed in East Hartford, Connecticut, um, deeply religious, which means what? Very Catholic. Okay. Yeah. I'm Catholic. I was raised Catholic. Okay. All right. So I have an uncle who's a priest and I had multiple aunts who were nuns. Oh, wow. So I see your Catholicism and I raise you clergy. Yes. (laughs) That's my mom. I think probably if she hadn't met my dad could have become a nun. Bride of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I should say the nuns are no longer nuns. They all got, you know, got out of it and got married or whatever. Oh, really? The priest is still a priest. When I went to Catholic school, um, one of my fifth grade teachers was a former nun teaching in Catholic school. I want so Um, badly to make the joke that she gave up the habit, but I'm not going to do it. (laughs) I'm not going to do it. Um, 
so talk about your relationship to Catholicism as a kid. I'm, I'm sensing maybe that it wasn't quite a fit. In oh, the I, I was, um, it's interesting because I was so deep in it. I didn't understand that there was a world that wasn't in it. Like right. I remember selling right to life stickers in front of our local grocery store, you know, right. it's like right in there. Like you sold them. Yeah. As a fundraiser for okay. something. I can't remember. I thought they just like gave those out. <laughs> no, no, they were a dollar each. They were very cool stickers though. But just like having that idea of like, well, of course people wouldn't want to kill babies. Like having no sense of the nuance of any of the like political ramifications. But I will say the earliest crack in it, um, I have an older brother and everything my older brother did, I eventually did. So he learned to ride a bike. I learned to ride a bike. When he went away to kindergarten and learned to write, he came home and taught me how to write. Um, and then the first thing that, that he could do that I couldn't do, he became an altar boy. I was an and altar boy. You were an altar boy. For like a you, ra you rang the bell. Yeah, that's all I wanted to do. <laughs> I, had no, I didn't care at all about, I just wanted to ring the bell. Yeah. Like that seemed cool. I did too. And then I found out you can't. And then that became, and until that point, it hadn't occurred to me that women couldn't become priests. Like this whole idea of like the patriarchy and how, you know, the, the how, where women were and where men were. I was probably six or seven. And then it was like this little feeling of like, Oh, wait a second. Mm. Like I'm, I'm like a second class citizen. I wasn't thinking of it in that way, but I think that was where it began to start to crack a little bit for me. See, that seems like the most natural logical progression in, in the world to me. And mm -hmm. yet I look at family members or people who, you know, mm -hmm. women, in, you know, specifically in the Catholic church, mm -hmm. how does that not bother them? Yeah. They're just like, okay, like it's, a, you know, it's a patriarchy and it's the natural order of things Is that what it when, is? when you're in it. But I will say, you know, as deeply Catholic and like full believers as my parents are, there was, um, the part in the liturgy, you know, how it comes around every year or two where it's the same passages from the Bible that they're reading. And there is one about marriage where they talk about wives should be submissive to their husbands. And my mom has this like wonderful loud laugh and she would be like whenever that line would come up from the priest my mother would laugh very loudly in the church <laughs> so i don't know if it was just like haha it's not funny but i still believe so i don't know well people don't... this is the thing is that people pick and choose yes the buffet catholics but, but everybody is like my gay friends who are catholic yeah. like how does that work exactly yeah. like everybody's got their own specific connection to mm -hmm. it and but it like if you're actually listening and you're like what these priests are telling you and what the Bible or whatever is telling you, it shouldn't work like that. Like they're giving you mm -hmm. rules. Like maybe I was too literal, but when I was a kid, I was like, oh, like this is intense and I can't do this and I can't do that. Yeah. And if I do this, this is going to happen. And it overwhelmed me. And yeah. so I, I was out of it when I was like, you know, a young kid, mm -hmm. I kept getting dragged to church, but then yeah. eventually I broke off and yeah. my parents finally gave up. Yeah. And I never went back. And, uh, I later would have conversations and I'd be like, but what about this? But what about yeah. that? And they'd be like, does God really care if you have fish on Fridays? <laughs> like, really? And, and they would just be like, oh, well, you know, like they weren't taking it as seriously as I was, is yeah. my point. Yeah. And they're able to just be like, oh, well, I'm not going to believe that, but I am going to believe this. Yeah. And I like the ceremony Yeah, and I like the ritual of going every yeah. Sunday. And to me, it was like, okay, if they're saying this and they're making these proclamations like it either is or it isn't. Right. Like you can't just have some of it without having all of it. Right. Yeah. Right. And then like 
to say nothing of like the subsequent revelations about all the sex stuff. Right. Like to, yeah. to like understand that even in part and then to continue to participate, man, that's a lot of mental work for me. Yeah. And I'm not like, you know, there are people who like my parents still go to church every mm -hmm. Sunday. My mm -hmm. mom probably goes more than once a week. Mm -hmm. They're into it. Yeah. Like family members, great people, yeah. love them to death, very close with them. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to sound like. So I'm, it hasn't driven a, driven a wedge that you're not no. Catholic. I, like I, I always say like to people, like I, I don't always say to people, but I feel lucky to have grown up with like religious conservative parents mm -hmm. and I'm like as progressive as it gets mm -hmm. and. I'm an agnostic, sort of Buddhist, mm -hmm. but I'm not Buddhist. Buddhist. I, I like that. I don't know any of the holidays. I don't yeah. know. I've never read all of the sutras. Like mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I don't want to overstate my case, but, mm -hmm. uh, it's totally possible to get along with people who don't agree with you. Yes. It takes two to tango. Yeah. But like, I think we've gotten maybe away from that a little bit where it's like, well, there could be, you know, there's a lot of people who are just like, yeah, it's my way or the highway or this could never, Well, you can be close minded and dogmatic as an atheist or as an agnostic too. Right. You know, where it's very important to you for not you personally, but to some people, for people who are deeply religious to know that they're wrong. Yeah. And I, I'm actually grateful to my religious background and, um, I've come to appreciate some of the things that it gave me that were invisible like to what? me for a long time. Um, like I think that sense of ritual and having sacred space, even in um, a non-religious way, like I think that does come from having the rhythm of, of having a religious life as a kid, like this idea that every Sunday morning, our family is going to do this thing and it's nothing's going to get in the way of it. And it's very important. And it has nothing to do with our material lives. It's about our spiritual lives. And I think having being married to somebody who didn't grow up with that has made me aware of what that's given me and kind of grateful for that. And I think also if you're going to be Christian, like nothing comes close to the pageantry of Catholicism. Like also just even the rituals of the mass and the incense and the stained glass. And my very favorite um, service to go to used to be the um, stations of the cross oh, right, yeah. leading up to East. And it was like the night service where you would go at five o'clock on Friday and they would just talk about, you know, Jesus on the cross and that, and the incense and it would be kind of dark. And I don't know, there's something about that aesthetic even that I feel like got in to me and um, how could it not? Yeah. I and comes and comes out in my writing too. I think you were, were you a guilty kid? Like do you have a lot of Catholic guilt? Were you yeah. I was obsessed with saints as a kid. Actually, this is something that's always been in the back of my mind wanting to write about because I would read biographies of the saints and was super into it. And like this idea of like, of course they always had these terrible trials and they were martyrs and that's what made them saints. And this idea of like, suffering for something that you believe in. Um, Who's your favorite saint? You got one? Oh gosh. I think it used to be St. Catherine of Siena. Yeah. Um, St. Teresa. What yeah. was Catherine of Siena? What was her deal? Catherine of Siena. Oh, now I'm going to forget having said that. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. going to, I'm going to forget the story. Uh, I think it was more, um, Maybe as I think back on like kind of the patriarchal structure and like who the heroes were at that time, there were all these women, like 
when you were talking about the saints, it's not like the male saints were higher than the female saints and they all like their sufferings were very embodied like bodily you know they were tortured and suffered terrible things and the women equally with the men as i'm saying this i'm thinking how sick is that (laughs) there is something about that that i think retrospectively i was i was into well that yeah that makes sense like that's the place where women could be on equal footing. Right. You the, can, you can suffer just as much. Yeah. <laughs> you can be tortured. That's what Catholic Catholicism will be drawn you. and quartered just like yeah. so-and-so. Yeah. Um, yeah. My grandmother like knew every saint and like what you pray to that saint for. And I remember like yes. losing something and she'd Saint Anthony, Saint yep. Anthony and you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But, um, I feel like I had a lot of guilt. I think I sort of agree with you about the things that it provided me, mm-hmm. even though it wasn't ultimately for me. Mm-hmm. Um, like that ritual, like this is what I always say, like as much as I disagree with so much of the dogma or just don't connect with it mm-hmm. as much as I have problems with like the political, um, point of view or points mm-hmm. of view that, uh, the church propagates. Like what my dad said to me when I, when we were kids to my sisters and I, he's like, like very corny kind of, but mm-hmm. also like, I believe it's like great advice mm-hmm. is faith, family, and friends. That's what he always used to say. Yeah. He's like, those are your priorities. And if you really think about it, that's pretty good advice. Yeah. Like if you're going to try to boil life down and it Mm -hmm. doesn't mean you have to, like, I've never taken it to mean that you have to sign up for church or something, or you know, join some church, but you do have to tend to that part of yourself. You can have secular faith, Yeah. you know, like a, a strong belief in something even in other people. You have to deal with your suffering somehow. Yeah. And you know, at some point life is going to test you. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, there's all different ways. Like you said, you can do it in a completely secular way. Mm -hmm. You can read philosophy, right? You know, who knows how people do it, but that to me falls under that umbrella of faith. You have to find some way to like deal with all of the trials of life. Right. Um, and And also get out of your own head you and connect with something larger, which I think is a, a lot of times what people say is the great benefit of religion, but you can find that in all kinds of ways. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So you have this crack when you're seven where you start to feel that this is gendered yeah. and, and, uh, exclusionary. Is that a word? Where yeah, like, it know, should be. Yeah. <laughs> I just made it up if yeah. it's not, but, uh, then what happens? Like you go to Catholic school. I went to Catholic school, um, where I was terribly bullied by. Yeah. By the other kids, girls I, or boys or both. Um, kind of, but I was so uncool. I was so deeply uncool. Uh, partly it was the timing of when I went to Catholic school, which was fifth through eighth grade, weirdly. So I went to a public, um, elementary school and then I went to a public high school, but I had the years that are generally the worst for everybody just so happened to be at Catholic school. And I think I was a bit of a late bloomer. So other kids were going through puberty and I still wanted to um, play with dolls. Okay. So you can imagine <laughs> how that went for me. Right. Um, yeah. But there was also, I think there was so much because everybody was sort of coming into their, you know, sexual bodies. And that was so taboo and forbidden. I think it just like, it came out in these really kind of insidious ways. Um, yeah, the tension yeah. must be awful in a Catholic yeah. junior high. <laughs> yeah, think about it. And and just even little things like, so, you know, I wore the uniform. It was a white blouse with the plaid skirt and the knee socks. And the white blouse was almost sheer. I mean, it was like, so you could see as each of the girls 
started wearing bras. It was very clear. Right. In your see-through Catholic school shirt <laughs> uniform, who is wearing a bra or not? Right. And, the, you know, and of course, the boys would comment on that. So it was just, it was a strange time for me. That's mm. also when I started getting into heavy metal, probably around seventh grade, because there was a group of like the bad boys in Catholic school who started getting into listening to Ozzy Osbourne and drawing inverted crosses on things. And I was so ripe to rebel against it. I was like, yes, that's, that's for me. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you went right to heavy metal. I did. Well, I had been a violinist, um, for a long mm -hmm. time. That's ties right in with my book. That's right. what my book is about. Um, and loved classical music, but then I, I found Ozzy Osbourne and I wanted to be a heavy metal guitarist. And I, it was just the intersection of, being really mad at life and wanting to rebel against my parents and rebel against Catholicism. And it was just, it was perfect. It was like made for all of that. That's the way to do yeah, it. I yeah. remember distinctly checked being, a lot of boxes. <laughs> yeah. I just remember being like a kid in junior high. Uh, and it was like Ozzy Osbourne bit the head off a bat. Yes. That was very, yeah. I thought he was like a devil or something Yes. for a minute. Yeah. So uh, did my mother. And yeah, <laughs> it must be thrilled. That's like, he was like, he was like Marilyn Manson before Marilyn Manson. Right. He's exactly. That was the cultural, was the like the role that he plays. Yeah. Isn't it? And that is kind of strange to think about. It's like generationally, like each generation produces like one rock <laughs> devil. Yeah. That's like the preeminent. It's like you need that. You need it. It plays a role yeah. in, in the culture in some way. I sort of love how laconic and, uh, thoughtful Marilyn Manson is. Yeah. Like, I don't know too much about him, so I don't want to, like, deify the guy. But, yeah. like, whenever I read an interview or see him on TV, I'm always like, yeah, I like that guy. Like, Wasn't he a journalism student? Probably. He's a, he's he's a writer. He's definitely bookish, and, like, he's definitely smart. And yeah. uh, I think that's part of why he loves to do what he does, like, in, you know, in terms of his aesthetic, is that um, he can play these great, like, contrasts mm -hmm. everybody's expecting him to be like ah. yeah and then he starts talking and he's just like very cerebral and quiet yeah, yeah. <laughs> i didn't know that about him yeah. that makes me like him more uh, yeah actually. i know but i mean if like I, I say that i always have to put an asterisk next to everything because i'm sure like if you started to investigate on twitter he's said and done right. awful shit that he's, he's been, done something douchey he's been somewhere. canceled like a million times really <laughs> i'm sure <laughs> almost definitely yeah but uh yeah, that's that's fascinating. So you get into heavy metal. Do you actually get a guitar? I do. Oh, I join a band. Whoa! Called the Virgin Saints. See how this is all tying in. <laughs> what are your parents yes. thinking? Uh, they don't like it. But at they all. got you the guitar. No. Oh. They did not. It was it was uh, it was actually very controversial in my family because I was a violin player, and my mother especially was very into my violin playing. You were good. Um. I wouldn't say that my mother would, but I was, um, let's put it this way. Eventually I went back to it and I did go to conservatory, but I lasted all of two weeks. So now I, I'm, a, I'm basically a conservatory dropout, but in seventh grade, I said, you know what? I'm listening to all this heavy metal. That's the music I want to play. I want to play electric guitar. And my parents who had been very supportive of my violin lessons, I took private lessons and they didn't have a lot of money, but they invested in it. We're like, well, if you want to do that, you're on your own. You're paying for your instrument. You're paying for your lessons. I would walk a mile in each way to my local music store to take my guitar lessons on Saturday mornings. And when I, whenever I did anything that they wanted to punish me for, the first thing they would do is take that guitar away. Damn. Thus, 
ensuring that that would, you know, just feeding the fire of me wanting to do it, right? Like now I'm a parent and I say, oh, you know, they thought they were doing the right thing, but really they should have just encouraged me in it. And then eventually as I did, I would have come back to the violin, but because they were so hardcore against it, it was like, you know, it just made me want it all the more, of course. Did you, uh, like, do you think about, I guess it was the anger in the music and the heavy metal? Yeah. Yeah. That's what you were responding to. Cause I started with kind of the gateway bands like Ozzy Osbourne. I was super into, you know, like poison and, um, but it, it kept getting like, then I took like the deep dive into Metallica and Megadeth and Testament because I was into guitar playing and I was into like, virtuoso guitar playing i think also coming from violin so i still think randy rhodes yeah. is one of the best oh yeah guitar players yeah. ever yeah he's so good i got to meet um kirk hammett uh maybe two years ago he actually had an art exhibition that came to the peabody in massachusetts and he came to the opening and played and i was like transported back to my 16 year old yeah well he actually played this beautiful piece that he had composed for solo guitar and it was definitely rocking but it was also like very intricate and melodic and you know i just like my jaw dropped and i'm staring at him and steve's there with me and he's like we should be we should be filming this and i was like you do it i can't i'm in a trance you know but it was amazing that's so cool yeah Yeah, the music that gets to you when you're that age yeah and i think between like junior high and like when you're in your early 20s yeah there's a reason why you know when once you get like to my age and you know you're just like i find myself just going back to the same shit yeah i can't i thought i would you know i don't want to be that way yeah but it you know, n- music doesn't embed the same way mm-hmm. that it did back then. I think it's true. It gets into your... You're open in a different way yeah. at that age. And you're, and you're yeah. also, you also have time. Right. Like, I just like can't keep up. Yeah. Remember... Well, and, and remember like listening to a whole album and yeah. like looking at the cover art while you were listening to that album. Can you even imagine... To, like today you're going to be doing a million things while the music is playing in the background. Right? I was just thinking about that yesterday. Mm-hmm. That very experience. And I was just thinking, it was like, it's like this thing that will recur to me about change in culture and mm-hmm. life in general, but like sometimes things change for the worse. Yeah. Cause I was, I think I was in my kitchen streaming music mm-hmm. and I was like, this is how I listen to music now. It's just yep. like play something and you know, right. Or play music like, you yeah. Know, I always use like Alexa to do my, you know, to just do it. Yeah. Which is also weird. Yeah. <laughs> but when, when I was a kid, like there's, you held the thing. Yeah. And there was like, they would sometimes write like these really intricate liner notes. Yeah. And you, could read it and and you actually it. read them. Yeah. And then the songs were put in a sequence that was very, you know, often very carefully mm-hmm. thought out. Yep. And I don't know. That's you me. went on a journey with an album in yeah. a way that you don't. I feel like the closest I get to that now is if I'm alone in the car and I listen to a whole album while I'm driving. So I love long drives and actually. You know, and you know what? I, now that I'm saying this, like I could just stream an album, but I don't do that. But you probably won't. I stream, like, yeah. g- I generalize, like, play rock and roll, like, play 1960s <laughs> soul music, or, you know, yeah. just because I want, like, a mix, like, in the background, yeah. but I'm not, like, in a concentrated way. Right. Like, listening. Yeah. And that's kind of shitty. Yeah. I miss that. Yeah, I do, too. Um, did you have records or cassettes or? Both. Both. Yeah, because I had a record player when I was really little, and then I just never got rid of it. So I had, I still have some of my heavy metal albums. Like I have an Ozzy Osbourne LP. I don't own a record player now. Uh, My friend, Sarah Tomlinson, who I'm staying with has a record player at her house and, you know, this beautiful shelf full of all of these records. And I was like, Oh, 
yeah, like it is possible to still do it. We I, got one years ago. Yeah. Like not that many years ago, probably six or seven years ago. It was like Christmas. I was like, we're going to get it. We're going to get a record player, mm-hmm. go old school and start yeah. buying vinyl. Yeah. And it just faded. Yeah. I don't even know where it is now. It's so much less convenient. Yeah. I don't want to have stuff. It's right. nice to just be able to t- be like Alexa, right. play music. Yeah. So it's that convenience. But I, uh, I think like, I don't know. It's just worth flagging sometimes the change. Like you do lose valuable shit. Mm-hmm. Like not all change is progress. Yeah. You know? Well, I think it's the chasing of convenience that we lose where we lose things of value. Right. Like this idea of like, well, I, I certainly can't just sit down and listen to an album. I have to be catching up on my email or cooking dinner, or do, you know, because we have so many tasks that we're trying to do all the time. And this idea that you could just like pay attention to the thing, you know, and I think the the most consistent version of that in my life is reading a novel. Right. I like you can't be answering email and, and cooking dinner or doing anything else. Like you really have to sit down and engage with the book if you're going to enjoy it. So I feel like that's the pocket in my life of that. And it has like a narcotic effect on me Yeah. when I find like concentrated reading time, especially mm-hmm. like just like in like 45 minutes to an hour. It's mm-hmm. like the beginning of the sweet spot. Anything beyond that is just insane. Yeah. It occasionally happens, yeah. but maybe on an airplane, maybe. Yeah. yeah. And I, uh, I always find that like when I'm done, I'm just like, ah, I feel better. Yeah. And like, you feel like you're slowed down and, um, sort of have like a buzz if it's a good book. And, yeah. You know, I will occasionally in the past, I will cop to in prep, you know, usually in preparing for this show, mm-hmm. I'll be like running out of time. So I'll get the audio book of somebody's yeah. book and I'll be like, people love those. I know. And I don't yeah. mind them in the car or whatever, yep. but like I'm racing. And so mm-hmm. I'm listening to them at like double speed. <laughs> and, <laughs> I and didn't it, know you could do that. Yeah. So it's like, so you can get wow. through like an eight hour okay. audio book in four yeah. hours, you know, so wow. it cuts the time down. Wow. But you have to concentrate yeah. to like catch it. Otherwise you have you, to get your brain up to that speed. And then imagine. I'm like grocery shopping and I'm doing this or I'm hiking and I'm like walking and I'm just like, what am I doing? Like, yeah. Like, this is nuts. I've got headphones on. I'm listening to somebody talk like at an inhuman speed. Did they sound like a chipmunk? Yes. That, yeah. Yes. <laughs> And like, I wow. think I'm having like a reading experience. Like yeah. it's not even like good for you, like neurologically. Probably. Well, right. That's what I, I mean. I don't know the research at all. I have to imagine there is research on what's happening neurologically when you're deeply engaging with a book or even a piece of music, like we were saying. Right. And of course that has to be different if you're speeding through it, probably even if you're listening to it versus reading it, because I know your brain processes it differently if you're reading on a screen versus reading on a page. So yeah, all of these things have an effect on us. Yeah. And I wonder about music. Like if you sit down to listen to an album straight through mm-hmm. and you're not like multitasking too much. Yeah. Like, what does that do? Like, does it have a different, it must have a different impact yeah. than if you're just cooking dinner or something. Yeah. And it's like the atmosphere. Yeah. I think it gets in there deeper. I mean, do you remember yeah. as a kid, like you, you would put an album, like a cassette in the player, yeah, press play and just like sit next to the boom box or whatever. And just like, listen, yeah. That was and me. even do it with another person where you didn't say a word to each other <laughs> while you were listening and just being in that experience together. I don't think that happens anymore. No, I don't think so either. Um, well, okay. So you're a heavy metal guitar playing <laughs> former Catholic school. <laughs> let's, let's bracket that. <laughs> But that's cool. And, uh, did your band have like original songs? 
I'm sure we must have. I cannot. Okay. I could not tell you any of them. Were you singing? Point. Yeah. No, I could not sing. I we, could not and cannot. I was purely the guitar player. Rhythm or lead or what is it? Um, I w- I always like to think of myself as a lead guitarist, but I will say like it was a pretty low bar for <laughs> lead guitar. Um, but uh, I think because coming from classical music, I was always interested in the solos, yeah. you know, and in the guitarists like Kirk Hammett, who are real. Like there's a level of musicianship that, you know, even exists in heavy metal guitar. That's fascinating. And I was certainly drawn to. And did you have like the violin, um, like the, your competence as a violin, uh, player, did that translate at all to guitar? A little bit. I think so. I think at a certain facility, I could read music and yeah. And, um, you know, the, on, in violin, like you're playing, it's it's not a rhythm instrument either. You know, I think that's probably why I was drawn to the lead lines. And um, certainly I was no virtuoso, but I was always trying to attain that. The Virgin yeah, Saints. The, the Virgin Saints. That's a good name, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I actually put it in the book. I was like, you know, I'm just like rattling off names of rock bands and I just threw in the Virgin Saints. Oh, you did? I'm like, yeah. It, why not? Because, yeah. Got to check. It like, lives on. It. That's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> So then you get to high school. Mm-hmm. The, the Virgin Saints break up. Is it Actually, the, I was in high school when the Virgin Saints happened. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you're in high school, you're playing in the Virgin Saints, yeah. but you're back in a public high school now. I'm in a public high school and I've left home. So I leave home at 16 oh. and move in with my drummer. No shit. Yeah. So you went full heavy metal. So I went full heavy metal. I mean, my parents, um, it, it, it was the thing that finally broke us. I was completely rejecting their values and their lifestyle. And they in turn were rejecting mine right, right. <laughs> as they had a right to do as parents. But, right. um, I saw my out and I took it and you went and just yeah. bailed at 16. Yeah. That must've Be- been hard though. Like for you or was, it I mean, just- there were a couple, I was living with my drummer in the basement of her mother's house. So we, we still had some adult caretaking happening. We weren't like totally on our own. Oh, so it was a, a girl. It was a girl. Yeah. So it was like yeah, your yeah. buddy. Yes. Not your, I thought it was not like, my boyfriend. I thought it was like drummer no, boyfriend. I was like, no, wow. No, no. Okay. That, even that, I think there was something still a little bit too Catholic and like, I couldn't have made that leap. Right. And even I had older friends who, um, took off for LA who were in that scene. And even that was a bridge too far. So there was still a part of me that was trying to be a good girl. LA is the den like, of iniquity. Yeah. yeah. Like, I think from outside of LA, I grew up in the Midwest and mm-hmm. I mean, before I moved here and by the way, I hear this now. People justifiably have concern about the homeless crisis because mm-hmm. it's in the news and mm-hmm. like Fox News like loves to trumpet this place it's oh, like right. Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. But my relatives are always like asking my parents who uh, you know live in Southern California too. Mm-hmm. They're like, they're like, uh, like what's what's LA like? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like it's really not that crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's got its moments. You know, it's this big city, but yeah. I think people and they think like people are just like fornicating in the streets. That's what I mean. Like, yeah. yeah. But I think I kind of maybe did too. I was like, LA is crazy. Yeah. You get shot you right. know, on the highway. Right. Like, that was like always like, you know, the, the news stories about people pulling guns on each other on the freeway, yeah. and, you know, the riots and stuff, mm-hmm. but it's a lot more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot more complicated than that anywhere. Right. Which is really the lesson. Yeah. You can't, for simp- sure. you can't simplify a place. Right. Um, but, but everybody thinks they know LA because everybody watches movies. It's been advertised. Yeah. Right. And 
I, I think I have in the past bristled at the way in which people like the joke I always tell is like people who've never been here before tell you they can't stand it here. Right. But <laughs> the truth is that they have some right to their criticism because this place has been so relentlessly advertised mm-hmm. to them. Yeah. Um, and, and advertises itself as a lifestyle, like as a way of life, Yeah. not just a location. Right. And so I can see how that it's got a brand. Yes. You know, I remember wearing LA gear. Yeah. As a kid. Right. Like that meant something, whatever, yeah. you know, your version of LA was. LA gear. Yeah. I'm trying to like picture the logo. Yeah. But I remember, it was kind of like that. It was a circle. But it was like the yeah. writing was like sort of like graffiti-esque. Yeah. Wasn't it? I think so. And kind of like, I'm, I'm just thinking of this black sweatshirt I had that said LA gear and like neon letters. And I wore that during my heavy metal days. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay. So you leave home at 16. Yes. Um, you know, kind of like a split with your faith. Yes. And your parents are just like, we can't deal. Yeah. But they knew where you were. They knew where I was. Okay. Yeah. I was actually not that far. I was still in my hometown. <laughs> we were actually next door. Yeah. And, uh, um, <laughs> we waved over the fence. Did you finish school? I did. Okay. Yeah. So your friend's mom was basically like, yeah, you can come stay here and I'll make yeah, sure you get Yeah. She to thought it was going to be two weeks and it ended up being a couple of years. Yeah. She was really, I, I think about that. I don't think I fully, I mean, I was always very grateful to her cause I feel like I needed to get out and she provided the way. Um, but now as a parent of a teenager, I think, oh gosh, if I had, if one of my kids had a friend who was having trouble at home and wanted to come live with it, like the complications of that, like I realize what a generous thing she did for me actually is pretty amazing. I sort of love people like parents who it's like, I kind of aspire to be like this. I'm maybe not as much like this as I wish I were is the parents who like, you know, it was always easy to go to their house when you were a kid. Yeah. You felt comfortable. Yeah. They were never tense. They're like, yeah, just hang. You want to crash? You can crash. Like, I want to be that dad. I want to, I want to be that mom. Yeah. Why am I not? I'm probably not though. <laughs> I'm always I'm like, little... oh, I'm so tired. But How late is he staying? <laughs> it's almost dinner time. But you know what? My kids are also young. My daughter's starting to get, you know, to close to double digits. So it's mm-hmm. going to start to change. But yeah. when they're little and they want to like hang out and do sleepovers, it's like, ugh. But in high school, I mean, they get older. It's still ick. It's still ick, but at least you can have a conversation with them. Yeah. That's the problem with the little kids is that like, I can do it for a little while. But then after a while, I'm just like, I'm, I'm not great at kids speak. Yeah. I'm good at this. Yeah. I'm like you kids want to go out to the garage and set up the microphones and you know, yeah. I'm joking, but not all, you know, give them the, a task to do. Yeah, right. That's they, one way. They actually really... like, I have in the past they a couple like times, I've taken my little like portable microphones out and kids actually think that's cool. Yeah. But I just talking about Legos and I'm just like, I'm yeah. not that dad. Yeah. I'm not like the. I don't have like a preschool teacher in me. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? I, the preschool teachers and, you know, kindergarten teachers that I know who do it, I'm in awe In awe of that you can actually engage so patiently for so many hours and be in that world. And Every I always day. felt like I love my kids so much, but I have such a limit, especially when they were little, like how much I actually want to be on the floor playing with them. Okay, good. That yeah. And I would better. have tremendous guilt about that. Like, oh, I love them. Shouldn't I want to be like playing Legos for an hour? And then at a certain point I was like, no, that's like, you can be real about what you're 
interested in and there and they respect you for it and you find those intersections and sometimes it's parallel play and they're with their legos and you're doing your thing and you're in the same room and do you know what uh, you want to know a life hack yeah like low dose cbd <laughs> thc makes magnetiles really fucking yeah, interesting i can imagine and i've done this in the past and i'm like like, especially when I know I'm going to be locked in. I just don't yeah. want to be a dick. Yeah. But then I'm like, am I really? This is where I'm at as a human being. Like, yeah. I've got to be on CBD to play with Legos. Yeah. But hey. Whatever slows you down. I And I'm like, I'm like my wife is <laughs> like, what are you doing? And I'm like, we're building a masterpiece. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm suddenly like the, uh, what is it? What's the famous architect? You know, uh, Frank Gehry or something. Yeah. You know, like I get very into the magnetiles, but I just want to make sure that I'm not my, I want to be like a parent who can play with his kids. Yeah. I want to be somewhat fun. Steve is, is so good at it that in some ways I feel like it lets me off the hook. Yeah. Like he gets to be the fun parent. And I think I maybe even had some resentment about that for a yeah. while. And I'd be like the parent who's like keeping the schedule and you know, you have this going on at this time and this, but then I realized like we're both doing the thing that we actually are good at and, and it, it, enjoy it takes more. a symbiosis yeah like, and it changes as they get older too like we our kids are into some really cool stuff now like our oldest daughter writes graphic novels and does these amazing wry funny cartoons i feel like your kids are going to be yeah. like your kids are brilliant aren't they our our son is a rock star he i, pl- I get, like he who, plays guitar i think i've seen a video he plays guitar and he writes his own songs and having a music background it's been so interesting to see his music life flourish because for me, whether it was violin or guitar, it was always about learning the instrument and trying to master the instrument and chasing after some virtuosity that always, was always just beyond reach for me. Which incidentally your book speaks to. Yeah, very much. Very it's much. It's about so. a violin. It's master. about a violinist who believes he's the reincarnation of Paganini, who's kind of like the ultimate virtuoso. And with Jude, with my son, um, whatever he, he plays guitar and ukulele and a little piano and stand up bass, but he's always chasing the song. It's not about the instrument and mastering the instrument. It's about, Oh, here's the song. What are the chords of the song? How can I make this song work on mm. this instrument? And that's like, I step back from that. I'm like, okay, that's, that was not created by me. This is purely coming from him and his own creative voice and creative path. And that's gotta uh, be so fun. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. But he is also the kid from when he, the, first started to talk, he would put language together in such interesting ways. So I would say, Oh, Jude's our poet. He's going to be a poet. And then he found music. It's like, Oh no, he's a songwriter. Now we're just trying not to fuck it up. Right. So what do you do? Cause like the thing <sighs> is, try is not it, to push too hard and just let it take yeah, its course. Yeah. But it's also, you want to make sure you like nudge them in the direction of possible right. opportunities. And I feel like with, yeah. a, with a musician, it's like Berkeley college of music, yeah. or it's like, maybe don't go to college. Just go start playing. If you I mean, really want to do yeah. it. Yeah. So I mean, he'll, he already will like go and busk <laughs> on street. Like he figured out, and he's also, you know, an acute 11 year old. So oh he'll God. go he's raking it to in. our town center and he would, he would come back with like a bag full of, you know, singles, but like bags full of cash. And, and he's like, people are asking me like if I have a YouTube channel or how to find me online. And he's completely not online. And I have such mixed feelings about yeah. that because sometimes he would say, Oh, somebody was filming me with their phone. That's how and Bieber it, got yeah. discovered is really? uh, on YouTube. Yeah. And, and he knows of other people on YouTube as well, but I also feel like, ah, you know, just do your thing. Like why, 
Keep it fun. Yeah. You don't need to start like don't go marketing. pro at 12. Yeah. Don't market yeah. yourself at 12. Yeah. It's plenty of time for that grim business. Exactly. Um, but it's enjoyable as a parent and our, and our youngest, our six year old writes songs too. And he's a great singer. So can you sing? Yeah. No. And can Steve sing? Steve can sing. Can he really? Yeah. He's a really good singer. Really? Little known fact I didn't about know Steve Allman. <laughs> he can sing, he can write. <laughs> and they, they, everybody knows he has a wonderful speaking voice. But yeah. he's, he's actually a, a great singer. It's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My daughter's like really into musical theater mm-hmm. and I'm essentially tone deaf. Yeah. Though, and like, this was fucking with me the other day because uh, my great grandfather was a pianist, like a professional. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. how he made his living. Mm-hmm. I never had a piano growing up, mm-hmm. never took a lesson. Yeah. And I was like in the kitchen again, this is where I have my little grim epiphanies. This is what happens. I was like, what if I have a talent that I have no idea that I even have? Like, what if we have like, just because of lack of exposure, Yeah. maybe I would have been a brilliant piano player, but maybe it would have come naturally to me in ways that I couldn't even uh, believe, Yeah. but I've never tried. But then you get into like fate and the universe, like, you know, if that was your destiny, you would have it would have found its way to you or you would have found your way to it. Instead, I, I found my way to this microphone. You did. And look <laughs> what's happened for Just you. The bounty, so... <laughs> the bounty of uh, conversations that yeah. I've had. Um, well, that's awesome. That must be like super fun to get to see your kids play and sing. Yeah. There's something like, I can't think of anything more pure, like full of like earnestness and joy than like a child singing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They, they have like no... You know, at least in a certain like age window, yeah. There's like no, they got no angle, yeah. You know what I'm saying, yeah. or like no like self consciousness and right in the way that we are probably accustomed yeah. to. You yeah, know? for it, sure. And that's that's one thing about like trying to nurture the kids creatively. And I think when you have kids, you naturally start thinking about how you were raised and how you were parented and probably some things you want to change with your own parenting. And I think of like, when I see how unselfconscious our kids are and it's starting to change as, as our older ones get older. Um, I see that change a bit, but when they were young and the world was their stage truly. And if you nurture that and just encourage them, how beautiful that is. I feel like so, like I had such artistic aspirations as a young person, but I was so self-conscious. I think that's what really, I'm still um, self-conscious. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's what did me in, in terms of having a music career too. Like I was just too, I couldn't relax in the way that I needed to. And there's something about writing. I think because I can do it alone, Yeah, I can relax into it, you know, and pretend that no one will ever read what I'm writing and sort of get into the zone with it. But I think with music, it's, there's no way to do it and not be a performer, you and know? I want to stop you. Cause I think what you just said is interesting, you know, to me anyway, is that mm-hmm. when you're drafting a book, mm-hmm. maybe in particular, when you're drafting the first or second, you know, the early drafts, yeah, you do have to like flip that switch somehow. Yeah. You can't be grading yourself as no. you're writing. Yeah. You have to get in it and let yourself go. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm saying something so elemental, but like, I think that's, been something I've struggled with. Yeah. Is that I'm too neurotic. I'm like constantly like it's hard. deleting and yeah. editing as I go. And I just need to let myself just yeah. 
just do it yeah and then figure out what it is later i think that's one of the evils of word processing too to to get back to that sort of the convenience like of course we're all writing directly on our laptops most of us right. every once in a while a writer will talk about doing longhand drafts and it's like ooh, how retro or like um, i have a friend who's on a typewriter precisely because it's just harder to edit and it slows yeah, down you can't stop and just go back and change your words um whereas especially if you're handwriting you know, I used to do full drafts and then I would go back and cross things out and, and write above it. But also you, you have to do it slower. So the first draft comes somehow comes out better because you like pre-edit in your mind, even halfway through a sentence, Right. you can change it. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, there are all these little tricks that I do to try and get myself relaxed enough to do my best writing. Like what? Well, one of them is, like I said, just pretending that nobody will ever read it, right? you know, or just continually setting the bar as low as possible, <laughs> you know, like being like, this is the shitty chapter that I have to write because I need to know what's going to happen between this event and that event. But I'm going to, this is never going to make it into the book. Or like, even when I was working on my book, um, it, it's, um, there are three point of view characters. It began as a single point of view. And, uh, the main character was the young prodigy in the book. And she develops this very complicated relationship with this older male violinist, the one who believes he's the reincarnation of Paganini. And whenever I would write the scenes between the two of them, I always felt like I couldn't quite access, um, the violin teacher. There was something about him where he was always kind of a shadowy figure. And I thought, well, I'm just going to try writing a, a scene from his point of view, just to try and get into his head, never thinking this is going to be in the book or he's going to be a point of view character in the book. And it was like so loose and easy, I think because of that. And so, you know, when I got inside his head, it was like, Oh, there was Paganini, which that aspect of his character had not been part of the earliest draft of the book. So it was like, for me, that was a lesson of like, sometimes you just have to like chill out. Yeah. As much as you can pretend that it doesn't matter because I think it's when we, put the pressure on ourselves that we get self-conscious and we think like, Oh, I really have to nail this. Right. You know, then it's better it, not suck. Yeah, yeah. That's hard. Well, you know, who says that is, uh, or somebody, I want to say did an interview with Bill Murray mm -hmm. or I was reading something, you know, a quote by him, but he was talking about how key like total relaxation mm -hmm. is to him as a performer. Yeah. And you sort of see that. Like yeah. he's like, you have to be loose. Yeah. I, again, I feel like I'm stating something really obvious, but I'm not able to do it as consistently, you yeah. know, as consistently as I would like. And it's not simple to do. No. Like to get it's your, simple to say, it's simple not, to say, but, yeah. but like to be on, like, imagine being like on like David Letterman for him back right. in the day, Right. you're getting ready to go out and you just have to be like, just like a noodle, you know, and you like, have two minutes, be super witty. <laughs> yeah. Be go. super witty. Like there's millions of people watching you. And, uh, you know, he's able to go there and I guess like, you know, I would never know, you know, what it's like to work with him, um, when he's acting, but I would imagine like mm -hmm. on a film set, he's probably pretty fun. Yeah. He seems like he would be, you would hope, I hope yeah. he's not an asshole. Yeah. There's been some weird you stuff. You can there never too. Know. <laughs> know. That's the thing that they say, like, be, be careful about meeting your heroes or yeah. don't meet your heroes or just Googling your heroes. <laughs> don't, don't you Google, Google them and heroes. it's like, Oh God, you no. know, so now I'm not like allowed to like this person or yeah. Have... Where do you fall on separating the art from the artist? Oh gosh. I, I, I think I take that by on a case by case basis. Yeah. You know, like I probably will not watch a Woody Allen film again. Yeah. Like there are certain artists where I'm 
like, ugh, I'm kind of, I'm too icked. Will you, will you watch a Scarlett Johansson movie? She defended Woody Allen. Didn't now, you know what I'm saying? How far does the web spread? Right. (laughs) Yeah, I probably would. I don't know. Um, I think I'm taking my own internal temperature more than sort of coming up with a, like, like I'm going to draw the moral lines and and this is how it should be. Uh, I think it's really tough. It's tough. Cancel culture is tough. Yeah, yeah. I'm really, I struggle with it. I'm also like, let me tie this back to Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Like the whole notion of forgiveness. Yeah. um, Obviously there has to be, I mean, it's got to, again, case by case basis. Right. Uh, I'm a big believer in second chances and mm-hmm. wanting to see the best in people and redeem also like the center. redeem the center yeah. and like recognizing what a fucked up person yeah. I am a lot of the time. Yeah. And, um, I don't know. I, I get, it seems like a death sentence. Yeah. It's like, you no longer exist. Yeah. And that to me, I'm very anti death. penalty. Yeah. yeah. I am. I am as well. Um, but I do think some, you know, in certain circumstances, it's okay to draw a line. Like, yeah. You know, um, I just, I, I think I'm predisposed to always see everything gray. Like I Mm. have rambled about this ad nauseum on this show, but Mm -hmm. like, um, I'll use Woody Allen as an example. Mm -hmm. So I tend to tend to believe his daughter. I have every reason to like, Mm -hmm. uh, Ronan, I've read his book. You know, I've read all these accounts, yeah. the, Maureen, the Maureen Orff Vanity Fair piece. Yeah. I read a biography of Woody Allen mm-hmm. in the year 2000. I actually mm-hmm. remember the year that I read mm-hmm. it. That was the first time I ever knew about, about any of this. Yeah. And like, remember putting the book down and just being like, whoa. Yeah. So there's all this evidence that's like piled up in my yeah. head. Then I read, did you read that essay by Moses? No. His son wrote this essay where he's like, no, um, you know, the truth is that um, why Mia Pharaoh, mm-hmm. she beat us and she's, you know, insane. And we were miserable. And mm-hmm. like, I'm like, holy shit. Like this yeah. throws a monkey wrench into yeah. it. He de- like, like, you know, vigorous defense of dad. Right. Um, and then, you know, there's some other, like, you know, probably some Twitter hole I was in or something where people are like, Mia put her up to it. She's crazy. Yeah. And then my head just gets muddled. Yeah. And then I talked to my literary agent Mm -hmm. and I think it was like right after that Moses had come out. I was like, just like shooting the shit. I was like, this is messing with my head. It's on the internet. And she's like, dude, dude, he did it. (laughs) And I was like, okay, fine. Yeah. And that's the last I thought that was the final word. I mean, for now, I, I feel like erring on the side of believing women it's probably the way to go. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, there's just been such a culture around silencing women and especially this aspect. Um, but fully acknowledging that maybe there are some, like uh, certainly there's gray area Yeah, and you know, these are complicated dynamics and there's a complicated power structure around them. Um, but I will probably err on the side of believing women until there's strong evidence or a strong reason to not. I think that's a good policy. And I think like, you know, some of it too has to do with just being at a remove and like receiving all of this news and information like online, like in a hurry. Yeah. And you're just like, Oh, wait a second. Where is this all coming from? But I think if you're a woman growing up in this culture, I think a lot of us are going, Oh yeah, of course. Right. We're, Oh, we're allowed to talk about it now. Of course that's going on. Yeah. You know, you didn't know. Yeah. Um, so did you, 
I mean, like, uh, like the, like the Catholic school stuff mm-hmm. and growing up Catholic. Yeah. I was totally insulated from any of the sex stuff yeah. or weirdness. Was there weirdness in your Catholic there school? There was not. Yeah. No, we didn't have that. I know of. Right. Um, I don't think there was any of that, Did but you- when it came out, it was, again, it was not surprising in a way. And I think because it's a power structure that is so much about repressing people's sexuality that it almost kind of like, of course it would come out in these sort of weird twisted ways eventually. I didn't know that it would be, you know, systemically sort of built into it and covered up and all the rest of it. But it was like, of course there would have been a case where somebody was abusing that power. I mean, any like organization that that's like that wound up about sex. Right. And like that oppressive, the whole thing. Of course. Yeah. Like there was always something weird. Right. Exactly. <laughs> that like maybe you couldn't define for yourself when you were a kid, but like you sensed it. Yeah. I definitely sensed yeah. it. Like, oh, like this is a lot. Yeah. Just- and I think about the message that you're being sent as a, a kid come, go, going through puberty about how your body is evil and, you know, your very natural sexual <laughs> drives and urges and feelings are evil and should be, you know, it's the devil. Yeah. Like all of that. Of course, that's going to mess with people. Right. Yeah. Now that you put it that way, yeah, I, I mean, need to go see a shrink or yeah. something. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so then college conservatory. Yes, I, I heard so, you like allude to this, but you were you know you were living outside of the house. I was. Did, like, did you ever reconnect with your parents? I did. You did. Okay. Yeah. In fact, um, at my dad's urging, after I dropped out of the conservatory, I went to our local community college, and he said to me, you know. Just take one class, whatever class you want to take, and I'll pay for it. This is, I had not been living at home for a couple of years at that point. Um, and I wanted to take an acting class because I, I don't know, I, I thought, you know, I was still trying to be in bands. I was still thinking about being a performer, even though I had terrible stage fright. Um, but instead, I took a writing class, and it was like a beginning composition, like a very remedial writing class. But over the course of that class, I kept trying to turn my little formulaic essays into fiction. Right. And in fact, I did the final project, um, whatever that essay was supposed to be. I actually wrote a little short story from the point of view of a middle-aged man. And my um, the teacher for that course gave it back to me. He was like, I'm sorry, I have to fail you for this class, but I think you misunderstood the assignment. I don't know why you turned in somebody else's work. And that's when I knew that I was going to write fiction. I was oh. like, oh, you believed that? You didn't realize that was me writing a first person account from the point of view of a like divorced middle-aged man. So that kind of sent me on the path. And I didn't know up until that point that you could go to school to be a writer because I didn't know any writers. I thought, Oh, you just live life and you're inspired and you probably drink and do a lot of drugs. Right. right. Cause that's what writers do. Right. Um, but over the course of my community college career, I realized like, Oh, you can actually study this in school. What, com- what community to- college was it? It was Manchester community college. Okay. In Manchester, Connecticut. In Manchester. Yeah. yeah. And then I transferred to Wesleyan University and had that experience. And that's where I took my first writing workshops and kind of got deeper and deeper. What is Wesleyan? Wesleyan's like, I'm picturing like a beautiful. It is beautiful. Camp- is it a yeah. Catholic school? It is not. It, is it not. was, I think it was a um, Methodist. Okay. The Wesleyans, like, I forget the, whoever started the Methodist religion with somebody Wesley. So that's where it comes from. But it's, you know, the quintessential New England campus with brownstone buildings and beautiful lawns and gorgeous old trees. 
Yeah. It's cool. It was lovely. And you, yeah. and that's where you like dug in and started to that's read. That's where and... I dug in. Yeah. Where I did, I, I was able to do a senior thesis that was a collection of short stories, oh. you know, but even then I was so naive about what it meant. Like I thought, Oh, and then I'll graduate and I'll get these stories published and I'll be off and running. <laughs> <laughs> I had such an, yeah. I, I've had, I've said this before, but I had such an antiquated view mm -hmm. of like what publishing would be like, yeah, like the world of publishing. I was like, I had this like 1920s. Yeah. I think me too. Like vision of how it was going to yeah. go. Like we're going to have lots of drinks over lunch. And, yeah. You know, it's going to be great. <laughs> yeah. Your editor's going to pull you out of the gutter when you've drank too much yeah, and, and like loan you money, when right. you need it, give you yeah. like push your advance and like, you know, yeah. all this bullshit. And, yeah. um, you know, then you, you get hit with reality, but it's changed so rapidly, even in our lifetimes. So too. much. I feel like we can be forgiven for, if we thought it was going to be one way when we were kids. Well, and, did, were you yeah. reading, were you like lit up by books that were, um, of the past when yes. you were a school person, oh, yeah. a school person, a school person, <laughs> uh, a, I a very student. much identify as a school person. <laughs> That's what I am. Uh, cause I was that way. Like I always, and I think I still to some degree am, I tend to like reach back in time for books. Yeah. I'm and... a, I'm a big fan of 19th century novels. Oh really? Yeah. Why? Um, I think it does have something to do with the pace of life and how like leisurely a narrative can unfold in a 19th century novel, um, and how psychologically astute they were too. Like I read middle, I have two English degrees, so I have a, my undergrad and, and a graduate English degree. And I somehow never read George Eliot until I was out of school. And then I was like, wow, she's so sharp about human relationships and writing about families. And even in middle March, it's the story of a marriage, but it's also the story of this community and it's got religion and philosophy. Like they pack so much into those narratives and they're not afraid to have a real narrator who can sort of take the reader by the hand and say, well, now I'm going to tell you this and I'm going to be overt about telling you this. I'm not just going to like drop you in the middle of the scene and have you figure it out. Right. Um, and I love that about them. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Maybe there could be like, maybe there's a way to like somehow... I mean, I don't think you can obviously, um, recreate that, but that, I mean, do you feel like that sort of aesthetic and that sort of approach filtered its way into your book? Maybe I think so. I was thinking a lot about how narrative worked when I was working on this book. And I guess, yeah. like, I guess maybe the, the more pointed question would be like, obviously it's working for you. Like you can read a 19th century novel <laughs> and, and, and enjoy it today. Yeah. But I'm just thinking about like the market and they're crazily relevant today. Like I read Vanity Fair maybe a year ago, again, a novel written in, I think it was published in 1847. And there's a description of a politician in there that is like Donald Trump to a T. It was like, you know, somebody who made a bunch of money and sort of bought his way in. And, um, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do justice he, he to the wit of the money. actual lines, um, <laughs> right. but really cared nothing for governance and just wanted the attention. And I'm reading this and I'm nudging Steve next to me going, Oh my God, you know, read this. <laughs> who does this sound like to you? Right. This book was written in 1847. So it's, uh, there's something about human nature that they capture so well and, and with so much wit that it's, they're so relevant. The, the greatest ones. Yeah. Why do I feel like mid 19th century? Like I always, I have this like long romance with uh, the transcendentalists and that whole scene mm -hmm. and like how literate everybody seemed back then. Yes. Is that everybody just, read? Yeah. Is that not true? Am I like yeah. idealizing and it was just maybe a, a small subset, but like the, the, the letters that they wrote to each other, yeah. and just the way they talked, yeah. like, they seemed like they were a lot more learned. 
Yeah. And like they read so much, it seemed like compared to most of my contemporaries. Yeah. Like even writer people, you right. know, like the. As opposed to school people. As opposed to school people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dividing us up into groups of people, but um, I think maybe like there were, you know, obviously it wasn't as much uh, choice in terms of media. Yeah. But and, I also think there was probably a like huge class difference. And then it's like, well, whose who's letters have survived? Right. Right. I'm sure there was a lot of illiteracy and. But those Civil yeah. War letters and like the yeah. in the Ken Burns documentary, yeah, were like from the trenches. I'm they're amazing. Like, they're amazing. Yeah. But I guess like if anything is going to make a poet out of somebody, like out of the blue, it's going to be yeah. being in the middle of a yeah. like a war zone. Our oldest daughter has gotten deeply into Hamilton because of the the musical. We're actually going to go see it in San Francisco next week. Oh right. Um. So we've been listening to that music, but she's taken a deep dive into the individual characters and reading their letters online. Like apparently there are all these like little pockets on the internet of people who are, you know, not just into Alexander Hamilton, but sort of his cadre of friends and fellow revolutionaries. Um, so her and I have started texting back and forth to each other in the flowery style of like an 18th century letter. And so I've been out here and she's home in Boston and she's sending me these texts that are cracking me up. And I'm like, <laughs> I love that we can do this. Yeah, right. you like, it's the way to use this Wouldst technology. Thou spare me your ear, dear mother. <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, okay. So undergraduate degree at Wesleyan, mm -hmm. you know, you're going to be a writer going yes. into Wesleyan. Yes. And then you went on to get your graduate degree. Yes. So to just like try to in, in, you know, an abridged fashion, sure. like, how do you go from, uh, aspiring writer and student school person yeah. to publishing and getting books done? It was a long, long process for me. I think it's good that I didn't know at the time how long it would really take. I think I would have, it, it would have been discouraging. Um, but I also had three kids in the process too. So yeah. the, so the short version is I did my undergrad. I had this, you know, collection of short stories that I kept trying to get published. I couldn't get them published. And in the meantime, I came to Boston and got work as a technical writer in software because I graduated in 99. And that was when like technology jobs, they were just like standing on street corners, giving like them out. One. It was, it was amazing. It was, right. I, I was so blessed and lucky actually to graduate when I did, because I was not a technical person at all and was like baffled by like, how do you send an email? Right. Um, and somehow ended up working for Motorola like, and other tech companies, um, because I could write and I figured out that I could translate kind of engineer speak into language that other people could understand. Um, so I, so I sort of fell into that and I did that for a while and was like living a semi-adult life in Boston, paying my bills and, you know, being a 20 something in Boston, uh, and always feeling like, yeah, but I'm, I'm really struggling to work on this novel. I really want to be writing full time. How does one do that? And then that sort of brought me to applying to MFA programs. And I ha I was lucky to have people in my life who were like, don't go into debt over an MFA program. Don't do it unless, you know, you get some funding, um, because odds of you graduating and, and being able to easily pay back that money. Like, you know, it's really it's the, the, the one in a thousand who like gets the big book deal and really thank God somebody told you gets, gets launched in that way. Yeah. And that, but I was lucky enough to get into Irvine. So that uh, right. brought me out here and that's a fully funded program. And, um, so where does everybody live when they go to Irvine? Cause I know Irvine, <laughs> it's like, you just not like, cheap. Yeah. yeah. You're just in some apartment. Like, like, I had, I had graduate student housing. Okay. Yeah. And they then, even allowed me to bring my two cats. Oh. So because I had been 
living like an adult before, you know, everybody cam- comes in and they have roommates and they sort of, there was a lot of like people still living like they were undergrads. And I was like, well, I've got a car payment and I'm 30 and, you know, can I bring my cats? Can I please have my own place? And right. they, they said, yes. So, um, yeah. So who were you in? Were you in school? I mean, we talked about Matt Summel. Mm-hmm. Like, do you have other people in your cohort that were? Yeah. Ramona Alcibel. Oh yeah. I've yeah. had her on the show. She, yeah. She's wonderful. In fact, there's a coffee shop not far from here and there's like a bookshelf in the coffee shop mm-hmm. and her book is sits by itself facing oh. out one of her books. How lovely. I'm like, is this just like a random, like decorative thing or yeah. like, do they know her? Or they were like, <laughs> there must be space around it because it's, it's just, no, it's like one beautiful... book inside of a little like square, Oh, like sort of decorative. Oh, it's her book. Like not there for you to read. Kind of. No, I don't think oh. so. But I feel like I should tell her. Yeah. But then I don't want to weird her just out. Just so you know. Just, just so you know, your book is facing out <laughs> at the coffee shop that I go to. <laughs> just the decorative version. But I would yeah. be, if I, you know, if someone told me that about my book, I'd be pleased. I'd be like, yeah, oh, I wow. would too. Thank God. Yeah. It's facing I'm out. I'm going to send him my book. Let's, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> Maybe I could go and swap out hers and put yours in there. <laughs> Shh, don't tell her. Um, so you spend just the two years here in Irvine? I did. So there's, with that program, there's an option to have a third year. And I had actually had my heart set on running their literary magazine and taking the third year. And, uh, lo and behold, I got pregnant and Whoa. yeah, Steve and I eloped and I went back to Boston. So wait, you yeah. and Steve were dating? We were. So we met in Boston uh-huh. and we were dating. We had this kind of tumultuous early relationship where we were very on and off and, uh, and then I left and went to Irvine and then we got serious. Uh-huh. And I think at that point it was also, we were evolving as people, but also there, you know, when you're buying plane tickets versus like, oh, I'll drive across town and, you know, go, go see my lover. It was like, well, no, now I'm planning months in advance and ordering plane tickets. And right. what are we doing here? Right. What know? does this mean? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so then that ended the, that made it a three year yeah. thing into a two year thing. That, yeah. And you went back to Boston. And I went back to Boston. And that's where you've been ever since. And that's where I've been ever since. And how do you, I think this is a question that I don't ask often enough, but you have three kids. Yeah. That's a lot. It's a lot. And then to be writing. That's what Steve says all the time. Oh, we've got all these kids. (laughs) I mean, we love them, but we got all these kids. Yeah. I mean, it's a, parenthood is a big job and it takes a lot of energy and time and attention. And, Mm -hmm. uh, how do you, in the midst of all that, find time to write? Well, this is my big excuse that I give for taking over 10 years to write this book. Cause I had, cause I had three babies over the course of writing it. Right. Um, and a baby is a pretty compelling narrative to tear yourself away from, you yeah. know, so yeah. that that's hard. And also we, Steve and I both, we live, work and parent all in the same space. So we have this cute little 1930s Cape bungalow in our town back home. And we're, you know, when we're in our offices writing, if the kids are home, we can hear them. And even in the early days when we had babies and toddlers and we would have babysitting, um, you know, you can hear exactly what's going on. It's, right. it's hard to turn that off. You put headphones on. I don't. Cause you, then you can't yeah. hear them. Then it gets scary. Like yeah. if they're crying out for you. <laughs> you yeah. Just... <laughs> I don't know. There's something about the cutoff nature about the, of that for yeah. me, that would freak me out. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's probably a good idea though. Yeah. Like our power went out the other night, like randomly, cause it was really windy here mm-hmm. and, uh, some transformer blue or something. Mm-hmm. And we don't, we have a monitor for my son. We like woke up. We were like, Oh shit. Yeah. Like, thankfully, like the transformer blew like a half an hour before we woke up. So yeah. So there was like a half hour window. Yeah. 
it's just weird. Like you have that parent radar. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't shut off. I know? mean, we had our kids' bedrooms literally like 10 feet from our door and we had monitors, you know, yeah. and at a certain point I realized like, I probably don't like if something's really wrong, <laughs> I'll hear it. Yeah. But yeah. Do you have the video monitor or the audio? No, just audio. We just had the audio. Yeah. That's what we have. Yeah. I don't need to see them. But I have a friend who has a, um, had a little baby. Now that baby is probably about three, but she had the video monitor that she could also watch on her phone. So we went out one night and she was like calling up the app that showed her baby asleep. She's surveilling in the crib. her baby. She was surveilling her baby. <laughs> and I was like, I'm kind of glad either that didn't exist or I didn't know about it yeah. when I had babies. Cause I think I would have, you know, obsessively been out trying to have dinner with Steve and been like, look at our baby. She <laughs> rolled over. It, it, but is she sleeping? Is she, is she on her face? Does she, you know, are right. breathing? Like right. that would be me. Oh, the anxiety of parenting so yeah. much. And yeah. it doesn't go away. No, like, it never uh, goes away. What did I used to say to friends? Like when friends of mine would, you know, be pregnant for the first time, they'd tell me and I'd be like, Welcome to, and you know, permanent fear. Oh my God. Welcome. They must love you. <laughs> but it's true. Congratulations would have been nice, Brad. <laughs> You're now a permanent fear person. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome. Um, well, wow. So now here we are. Mm -hmm. Book is out in the world. Book is out in the world. Um, can you talk about like getting it into print? Was sure. that a pain in the ass? It was a pain in the ass. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I went the traditional route. I had an agent who, um, is lovely and worked on edits with me and helped me make the book, the best book it can be. And we sent it out to publishers and, um, it came kind of heartbreakingly close, like found a few editors at right. some big houses who really loved it and then couldn't sell the team or right. the marketing department or, or whatever it was. Right. Um, so finally my agent said to me, well, we can stop now. I was already sort of deep into working on my next book. And she said, well, we can just go out with your next book as your first book. And sometimes what people think is going to be their first book ends up being their second book for whatever reason, they're right. not willing to take a chance. And I think this book has some dark and controversial material in it. So I wonder how much nobody ever said that was the reason why they couldn't take it on. But I do sometimes wonder about that. Yeah. Um, or the other choice was to go to indie presses. And I felt kind of ambivalent about that because I had this, you know, again, the fantasy of the writer's life, like what kind of publishing experience I was going to have. Um, but I kept talking about it with other people. And, and it seems like more and more, even writers who have had books with big presses um, are publishing with smaller independent presses. They're just more willing to take chances on the material and on an unknown writer. And they're also yeah. like, not like obsessively looking at your numbers or no. whatever. Yeah. Cause that's like, I think a lot of how yeah. the decisions get made. They yeah, just look at the sure. data. They look at the data and they go, right. eh. Yeah. It doesn't even matter like how this book reads. Right. We don't have a sales track record. Exactly. And that's, you know, I get it on a business level, but mm -hmm. <sighs> you know, e each book is unique. Right. And, uh, it doesn't seem like it's quite the right way to be judging art. That's what I think. Yeah, for sure. And when I found this press, I knew it was the press for me because their description was there. It's lantern fish press out of Philadelphia. 
They're very small, um, female-owned and operated, and they look for books that sort of bridge genre a bit. So kind of their niche is literary fiction with speculative elements. And I think maybe one of the reasons why people thought this book might be hard to market is it's definitely literary fiction, but it does have some some fantasy elements to it. I would not characterize it as a fantasy book at all, um, but it has it has a smattering of that, you could say. Um, and when I sent it to them, they got back to me immediately. We're like, yes, this is a lanternfish book. Oh, that's great. Um, so I feel like it found the right home for it. Yeah. And the experience with them has been wonderful. Like, I love you know, how the book looks just even as a physical object. I was, I was complimenting it yeah. when you got here and yeah. you gave me a copy. I was like, Oh, this is like, it's like nice and heavy. They did, yeah. Good they cover. did a nice job. <laughs> and like yeah. the cover, I don't know what the material is. I don't know how like the, how to language it, but you yeah. know what I mean? It, like, it's silky. Silky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love a book like that. Yeah. And okay. I want to talk to you about something. Sure. I need to get something off my chest. Okay. But we talk about like the dreams that we all have, mm-hmm. especially as writers of literary fiction you know, it's the, it's just the dream, like Mm -hmm. capital T, capital D, Mm -hmm. um, where your book is celebrated and well-reviewed and people are reading it and it's in the bookstores. Um, I feel like because I get so many books sent to me Mm -hmm. and I I will just like flip it over or there'll be like an insert. Yeah. And I see certain blurbers (laughs) and I'm not going to name repeat blurbers. Like, no. And you know, look, everybody ends up being a repeat blurber. It seems Mm -hmm. like at some point, but Um, what I'm getting at is that I feel like there is an elite circle Mm -hmm. (laughs) of like New York, mostly based writers, not all New York based, but like, and it's kind of like they have become like the council of elders Mm. that anoints a new elite person. Yeah. And you see this, like this stack of blurbs and you're like, Oh yeah. Like it's happening. Yeah. Um, do you know what I'm talking about? I think you might be onto something, (laughs) Brad. But I'm like, like, is there like, like, I guess I just want to know like what's going on subsurface. Do they all know one another? Yeah. Did they consult and like be like, it's time. I think we must anoint someone has come (laughs) who we will allow into the circle. Yeah. I, I feel like that's the work of agents and editors probably who are saying, okay, if we can get this blurb, it's going to get the people in the house excited about it. It's going to get review attention if it has this name. But that blurber has to, to agree to blurb. It's true. And then I guess if yeah. that blurber that blurber blurbs, then another blurber will be like, okay. <laughs> how many blurbs can a blurber blurb? Okay. And so then this is the other thing that, like, my neurotic mind has been like chewing on is that yes. like I sometimes feel like the the motivation to blurb a book Mm -hmm. has less to do with generosity Mm -hmm. and a genuine affinity for the work itself than it does to like co-brand or like put your name on something that seems cool. Oh, that's so cynical. Is that really cynical? That is kind of cynical. I'm sorry. (laughs) I am. No, I'm, I'm a dark broken man, but like, I know, like I feel like I find myself questioning it sometimes. Yeah. I'm like, oh, it's just like, I just want to be seen. Oh, this per Okay. I've seen the media and the yeah. press around this. I feel like this will be good for me yeah. to have my name on this. Wow. Is that fucked up? I don't think it's <laughs> fucked up. It's probably not even untrue in, in yeah. certain cases. Right. I think I take a, a slightly more generous look at it, which is, um, there, you know, it's, 
it, there's not a lot of readers out there. Right. You know, like the, the slice of pie is so small right. that readers get. You know, there's so many other things trying to get our attention all the time. And so I think everybody who's in the publishing industry is always fighting over that small slice of pie. And whatever you can do to get your book any amount of attention, people are trying to do. And I think people who are putting the blurb on, like I, in an ideal world, it's just like, I found this beautiful book and I want to put my name on it. But probably there's some pressure from an editor who also edits that other person or an agent who also agents that other person, or there's some crossover where it's landing on their desk and they're saying, Hey, it would be great if you did this. But I think if somebody only reads Stephen King and a Stephen King blurb on a book is going to make that reader read that book, I feel like that's all to the good. Yeah. You know, whatever gets people reading all to the good. But there mind. is for in the literary fiction world. Yeah. Especially if a book goes out and gets great reviews and does some sales. Yeah. If your name and blurb are on the back of that yeah. book, that's good for you. That's good for you. So I think what's messing with me, yeah. it's like, it's huh. like the old question about like, you know how they say like compassion is good mm -hmm. for your health. Mm -hmm. And so then it becomes like, well, wait a minute. Am I being compassionate because yeah. I'm actually compassionate or am I self-interested? Am I, do I have ulterior motives? <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. What I, I don't know. Yeah. I can, I can tangle myself up so easily. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I try to think the best of writers helping other writers, but yeah, I mean, it can feel like a club sometimes. It can. Yeah. I think too, like I live at the intersection of like publishing and publicity. Yeah. yeah so I see So you're it. exposed to the darker side I'm a just, lot more. Well, I'm than just I like am. constantly, I get like f five books delivered to yeah. my door every day yeah. and I'm pulling out, I'm trying to like parse it all. But you also have like a mini, you know, encapsulated version of like what's happening with books. Like so many books are coming out and you can't give attention to all of them. So yeah. how are those decisions made? Yeah. You know, and who, who gets to actually rise to the top of that, you, you know, blurbs are one way, but there's all these other ways too. Like, do, does a writer have to have a social media presence and what does that look like? And you know, that's, that's the side of it that I find baffling. I just quit. Frankly, I'm yeah, done. You are. I'm off. No social media. None. none. I'm done. Wow. Nothing's going to change me either. I admire that. I'm, I'm putting that's my great. foot down, but yeah. I, you know, I understand those pressure. That's part of why I revolted because it's like, yeah. you feel a pressure. Yeah. It's like you have to associate with this company yeah. if you want to have a career. Yeah. Like I think I was, I was about ready to get off Facebook and then my book was coming out and I thought, well, that would be a terrible time yeah, to right. take myself off give of that it a few, Give it a few months and yeah. then you can pull the plug. But, but I'm very like ambivalent about it and yeah. not like, I think the people who do it well are genuine and they're consistent. And I sort of poke my head up every once in a while. I'm like, Hey guys. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, but that's probably the, the saner way to be. Maybe. I was just, I mean, part of the reason why I quit had to do with my lack of self-control. Yeah. I was on Twitter all yeah. the time. Well, it's engineered to make you do that. Yeah. I was right? the gerbil just like yeah. pressing their, they're, you know, they're in your head completely. Yeah. Well, not anymore. Yeah. Right. Well, good for you. Um, do you believe that great work, uh, like, do you believe the cream rises? Is that the way that the meritocracy of just like good art? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like we talk about like the council of elders or whatever, <laughs> get to like <laughs> anoint like the next like, like it's like the, it's like the institutional embrace yeah. of New York publishing yeah. and like you are a mighty literary figure now. Right. Um, do you believe that like it's the work or do you believe that sometimes it's like other stuff like social connections or yeah. privilege? And then also in a, in a world where this many books are published, 
doesn't it ever mess with your head? Like there's so many great books that are probably just like, yeah, like surfacing for a moment and they just go back yeah. and like, there's, and you just don't know about no idea. Yeah. And there's actually a backlog of those going, you know, a couple hundred years, like talking about 19th century literature. Cause every once in a while, there's some undiscovered gem that they, comes out. Yeah. They, they just had an yeah. article. Um, I want to say it was like New York magazine, but it was like the masterpiece of the year is mm-hmm. a book that was like written in the 1920s or thirties or something that oh, just wow. got discovered yeah. and published. And it's like, supposedly, you know, I wish I had recall and could tell you what it is. Yeah. But, um, I, I feel like I might've seen that same article and I, I too cannot recall. Yeah. So <laughs> clearly the marketing team has not done their job. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, that doesn't surprise me in some ways. And I think what it makes me feel like is like, ultimately it's like, you just got to remember, it's just like the joy of the thing. And yeah. the reason for doing the thing is yeah. the doing of the thing. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's the act of doing yeah. the work yeah. that is the prize. Yeah. And everything else is sort of like, you know, either an accident of fate or yeah, some other, it's out of your control. I mean, everybody's trying to control it. That's the purpose of the blurbs and getting a high powered agent or trying to place a review and, and all that stuff. But I think if you don't genuinely enjoy the work, if you wouldn't do it, if you wouldn't work on your book in the same spirit of my, it's going to sound weird, like I'm plugging him or something, but you can't find him. So it doesn't matter. But like, if you can't do it in the spirit of my 11 year old writing songs in his bedroom, just because he loves to write songs, right? then like there are, there are easier ways to earn a living. I think we all know? need, like, I need you to just cut. And if you could do this for me, I would appreciate <laughs> it. Just have him cut an album just for me. <laughs> just for you. And just, I'll play it in here until I like, get myself out of Steve my will life. send you songs. He yeah. does. He does send songs to people. Please. He, he's, he's much, uh, he's more of a stage dad. Well, but I, I feel like, uh, you know, it's good to hear and see and read artwork from people who don't have like, uh, you know, the tangles that come with being an adult and trying to make a career out of it somehow. Yeah. Um, some of the best writing advice I ever got, which I didn't take, obviously when I was an undergrad at Wesleyan, the writer Kiana Davenport came and and did this amazing writing workshop with us. And she, um, the very last day, I think she was giving some advice about like, if you want to try and publish your stories. And she said, you know, if you really, if you want to be a writer, learn to do something else. Like basically go learn how to be a plumber, go study medicine, go like have something else be the way you make your living. Don't put that on your writing. Um, and of course I'm sitting on the table, like, why would I study anything else? Writing's like, that's what I want to do. You know, my, my other thing was music and that's, you know, even harder to make a living at. So I didn't take that advice, but now, you know, on the other side of it, I think, wow, that was really good advice. I no. kind of wish I had people say, uh, to me or all the question I often get asked is like, what have you learned from talking to all these hundreds of writers? Mm. And I, I came up with like a pithy answer just so I would have something to say. Yeah. And it was like all that I, like the three main things, and I came up with this years ago, and I think it still holds true, mm. is read a shit ton. Yes. Write yeah. every day or close to it. Yep. And don't try to make money at it. Yeah. Which is basically what you're saying. I think that's great advice, like, all three points. Yeah. Those three things I see, especially in the people that I've spoken with, who seem like the happiest mm-hmm. in the work. Yeah. It's usually they've got some job that mm-hmm. they like don't love, but they don't mm-hmm. like totally hate. Yeah. Or they have like a, a spouse who works and is able to support them mm-hmm. or some other good fortune, but yeah. they, they don't put that weight on right. the creative process, Yeah, which 
I have not been wise about in my own past. Yeah. Like, it's, this, it's hard. This has got to be it. Yeah. <laughs> this better be. This because better that, speak that to hope always lives inside, right? Yes. That, oh, this will be the thing that yeah. will get recognition or, you know, make some, like, who doesn't want to make a little money off their whatever project they're working hard on? Hard labor. Of course. It is hard work. Um, but if that's the reason you're doing it, then, then I think you're in trouble. You okay. Know? Yeah. On that note, I'm so happy to meet you. <laughs> I'm so happy I'm to meet you. I'm glad this worked out. I love yeah. the whole serendipity aspect yes. of like running into you at the ice cream store. And, yes. uh, now you're here. I got to meet my husband's safe crush. <laughs> so Steve and I have like, a, <laughs> you know, there's a bromance that's been going on. And and now that I've met you, I can say that I approve. You do. Okay, yeah, good. It's, I'm glad it's to still have your, safe. Glad to have your blessing. <laughs> Um, but congratulations on your book. Thank you so much. And uh, I now have like a complete like almond set yes. of podcasts yes. until your kids go on to yes. whatever glory. And we'll send go them over. Should I say the full name of the book? I don't you you I don't may. I'm going to, I'm going to talk about it you both are. before and after, okay. but let's do it now. Okay. So it's Witch's Dance by Aaron Eileen Almond. All right. Aaron yeah. Eileen Almond. It, yes. It's great to meet you. And thank you again. Thank you so much, Brad. Okay, that is Erin Eileen Ullman. Her novel is called Witch's Dance. Out there from Lanternfish Press. Great to meet her finally. You can find her on the internet at erinaileenalman.com. And uh, her Twitter handle, she's on Twitter. Her handle is at erinalmond1, the number one. So at erinalmond1. Aaron Eileen Almond, the novel One More Time, is called Witch's Dance. Go get a copy. Go get it. Buy it up. Thanks to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music at the top of the interview. If you would like to support this program, if you enjoy it, if you listen regularly and you want to tip your server, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me, if you have something to say, you can do that by emailing me. The address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Uh, what am I forgetting? Oh, don't forget about the app. This program has its own official app. It's free. It's the Other People with Brad Listy app. Get it wherever you get your apps. It's free. Next up on this uh, program, who's next in line? Let me see here. I believe we have coming up a conversation I had with Sam. Yeah, it's Sam Faramond. Sam Faramond is up next. I think he'll be coming up a week from uh, today, a week from Wednesday, a Wednesday episode. I don't think I'm doing another one on Sunday. So Sam Fairman, Sam Faramond next time on the program. All right. I got to go do stuff. Try not to get sick. Try not to lose my mind. Okay. <laughs>